And let's go ahead and pray before we come to God's word here this morning. Oh, Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that you choose to speak to us, that you've given us a testimony of your word, and that you speak into the darkness of this world, and that you give us hope, hope eternal in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do pray that even this morning that we would hear your voice. May you speak to us in a way only you can. That stirs our hearts, that stirs our minds for your glory. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ, our King and our risen Lord, and by the Holy Spirit that has inspired this word. Amen. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. This is the holy and errant word of God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. There are certain people uh, in life, in books, in Movies in the Bible that you and I will gravitate towards. I think usually it's for one of two reasons. Either it's because we see something in that character or, character or that person that, that we desire. We want to be marked by something that we see in them. Or it's because we see something of ourselves in them, and so we gravitate towards them. Over the years, I've found that I have always admired people, especially men, that are strong and yet know that they don't need to speak to everything. You know, that silent, strong type. Uh, maybe it's too many John Wayne movies as a kid. Don't know. I think more likely it's because uh, that is something that is so alien to me. Uh, I want to speak to everything. And so over the years, uh, I have labored and tried to learn watching these kind of men and have tried to hold my tongue more and to be more silent. And I gravitate towards people like that. We also gravitate towards people that we see something of ourselves in. And I have found over the years that when I'm at a, 
at a kid's soccer game or a kid's baseball game that I, I'm, I'm often gravitating towards that kid that's in the game that just isn't as good as all the other kids. Uh, you know, that kid that just seems to stumble over their feet or can't throw or can't catch. Or, uh, and that's probably because as a kid, when I played baseball, I was awful. Uh, soccer, it's pretty good. Football, pretty good. Baseball, not so good. Uh, remember my mom, she signed me up for t-ball, and I was so bad that the coach would only put me in one of two positions. It was either in right field where nobody ever hits the ball in t-ball, or it was the pitcher. Yeah, the pitcher in t-ball. It was my job to go out there and to act like I was throwing to home plate. And then the kid would hit the ball. I think the coach wanted me to feel like I was touching the ball, but don't actually touch it, Jason. And so I would throw it up there. I was playing something, but it wasn't t-ball. And so I gravitate towards these kids that I watch on a field that just don't seem to have it all there in the game. Well, Thomas is one of those people in the Bible that many of us gravitate towards because he reminds us of ourselves. We see something of ourselves in Thomas. Thomas is a skeptic. He feels very much like a modern man to me, sounds very much like a modern man 2,000 years later, as if he was raised after the Enlightenment and in the shadow of the scientific revolution and on this side of the influence of naturalism. But he wasn't. Thomas is just Thomas. And poor Thomas, we will all probably owe him an apology when we get to heaven and we see him because we all know Thomas only for one thing. We even have a little moniker that we fix to his name, Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. And in many ways, it's unfair to him. Why? Because he wasn't in the room as all the other disciples were when Jesus appeared to them. Thomas wasn't there. Why? We don't know why. Maybe Thomas was off running an errand for the rest of the disciples. Maybe they needed some bread, and he was off to, to Meyer to get the bread to bring it back to him. We don't know. Maybe when we get to heaven and we walk up to him and say, Ah, oh, you're Thomas, the doubting Thomas. He says, No, I'm the servant Thomas. I was off getting things for the rest of the disciples. We don't know. He was gone. He wasn't there. But all the other disciples were. They were there when Jesus appeared to them. And they spoke to, to Christ in His resurrected, glorified body. And so, as you can imagine, when Thomas comes back to the room that they are in, and he comes back from whatever he was off doing, the disciples give him an earful. Thomas, you missed it. Jesus appeared. Jesus was here, back from the dead. And Thomas reacts in a way that most of us would have responded, with skepticism. It's a weakness in Thomas, though it's not an impossible weakness. 
I went to look this morning at Thomas's faulty response to the resurrection, and then Christ's gentle response to Thomas, and then Thomas's right response to the resurrection. Can you imagine this scene when Thomas returns back uh, to all the rest of the disciples from whatever he was off doing, and he comes back into the room, and they have all just been in the presence of the resurrected, glorified Christ? And John says simply in verse 25, he just says, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. That's it. That's all that John tells us. But there's no way it was just that. Jesus of Nazareth, this one that they had followed for three years, this one that they had eaten with and traveled with and slept beside, this one that they had seen do miracles, multiply loaves of bread and walk on water and heal the lame and the sick and the mute and the deaf. They'd seen Him raise Lazarus from the grave. They believed in Him. They believed that He was the Christ. That He was the promised Messiah. They had believed, but then he was arrested, and they saw that too. And they saw him tried, and they no doubt were in the crowd as he had to carry that crossbeam and was led out of Jerusalem. They saw that too. And we know that some of them, if not all of them, saw him upon the cross. And they saw him die. They saw it. And saw him buried. All of this hope that they had, all of this expectation about who he was, they had dedicated their lives to him for three years. Forsaken their occupations, left their families, committed wholly to Christ. All of that expectation, all of that hope. And then it all seemed to just be crushed. Just to be crashed and disappear. But now, now they've seen Him. They've seen Him back from the grave. This one that they had devoted their lives to and believed in and placed their hope in, He had appeared to them bodily. All of their faith and all of their hope had been rewarded. There's no way that the disciples just simply said when Thomas showed up, Hey, Thomas, while we were you gone, we had a visitor. He was Jesus. No. They would have said it was tears streaming down their cheeks and smiles plastered on their faces and, and eruptions of, and shrieks of joy as they told him. Thomas, brother, we wish you had been here. Jesus is alive. We've seen him in the flesh. He's alive. Can you believe it? He's alive. 
Thomas can't believe it. He proclaims, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Here's a skeptic of the tallest order. Here's a modern-day man, if there is one in the Bible. Very much like many of us. In our passage, I don't think Thomas is demanding a miracle like those people in Cana of Galilee there in John 4 who just wanted to see more signs and wonders from Jesus. That is often what Thomas is accused of here, but, but he isn't a miracle seeker. He's just a skeptic. He's a skeptic, one who has trouble believing completely and wholly and wholeheartedly. It doesn't appear that he actually means that he will refuse to believe until he can touch Jesus' wounds, as if that was the basis for his foundation for believing. No, he, he's saying, much like we would say, look, I'll believe that when pigs fly. Now, you don't actually believe that pigs might actually fly, and so therefore you might believe this thing. You're just saying this is absolutely ludicrous. A resurrection, Jesus alive, I saw him dead. We saw him crucified. This is ludicrous. This is unbelievable. It's impossible to believe such a thing. And that's the response that most of us have to the resurrection. That's impossible. But God majors in the impossible. He has a specialty in the impossible. He can even take skeptics and make them into wholehearted, full-throated believers that will travel even to India, as Thomas will do later in his life, to share the faith, the testimony of who Christ was. Most of us who are Christians in this room have wrestled at one time or another with skepticism and whether we truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus, we're all weak, our faith is weak, but that's the cornerstone of belief in Christ, that He is the Savior of the world. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you can believe everything that the Bible teaches about God, but if you don't believe the resurrection, then there's no point in believing anything else that the Bible teaches about God. It's the very cornerstone. It all hinges on this. And all of us have to wrestle with this question. Was Jesus actually resurrected? Did He rise from the dead? Maybe in early in your life with Christ or during a specific time that you went through a trial of faith and your faith was tested to the fullest. But most of us have experienced such a test, or maybe it came or has come as we experienced some sort of trial of, of magnificent proportions of spiritual depression. Do I actually believe this? Do I actually believe what I have been confessing, that Jesus is who He said He was, that He's the Christ, and most importantly, that He was raised from the grave? 
There's some, as Calvin speaks about, that are wrestling to such a degree that their faith appears to be destroyed. It lies so concealed and buried in their heart that one wonders whether they have faith at all. Skepticism kind of creeps in and, and it, it dominates. It holds sway and doubt seems to reign. Maybe for a period of time. I remember one of my favorite professors in seminary, he was a man that I thought just had uncommon faith. Nothing seemed to rattle him. He had a PhD in historical theology, and he was a wonderful professor and just very honest about his faith. And I remember one day him standing before us as a class, and he said, after I'd been teaching in seminary and doing ministry for a couple of decades, I decided that I wanted to go back and get a second PhD. And so he went back to the university and decided to get a second PhD, and this time in philosophy. He had one in historical theology, he was going to get one in philosophy, and he got it. And he said to us as a class, he said, during those years that I pursued a Ph.D. in philosophy, I almost lost my faith. Almost lost it. After all those years of teaching, all those years of ministering, he said, I almost lost my faith. Skepticism hit. Doubt crept in, and he wrestled, much like Thomas here, much like many of us have done. Over the years as a pastor, I've had a lot of different parents come to me, and they're wrestling, they're struggling, because they're usually teenage children are wrestling and struggling. And they're questioning the faith that they've been brought up in. Are the claims of Christ true? Did this man actually live? Did he actually die? Was he actually raised from the grave? And these parents, they're, they're concerned, and they're praying for their children, and they're wrestling with God for their children. And as I've said to them on multiple occasions, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Covenant children need to wrestle. They need to wrestle with whether they truly believe Christ was raised from the grave. And often our covenant children, especially those with a good mind, they are going to wrestle with these doubts. And they come out on the other side often stronger in their faith. They need to own it for themselves. Especially those with a good mind like Thomas. He, he must own it himself. He says, unless I see, place my finger, place my hand, I will never believe. It's a bold statement. It is more than strong. We get no insight into how the other disciples respond to Him because it doesn't really matter. But we do get insight, a clear picture of how Christ responds to Thomas's doubts. And, and it's a gentle response. I'm told in verse 26 that eight days have gone by. I imagine those were eight days that were filled with passionate conversation. 
As we saw last week, after Lazarus was raised from the grave, and those people in Bethany had seen that, they, they couldn't keep to themselves what had happened in Bethany, and that Lazarus has been raised, and you now take that kind of excitement, and you increase it by a hundredfold. Because this is the one that they had believed in. This was who they believed the Messiah was, the very Son of God. And so these disciples, there is no doubt that they couldn't stop talking about this during these eight days. And no doubt they were trying to convince Thomas of what they had seen, that Christ was back from the dead. Because he had prophesied it. He had said that after three days in the grave, he would come back from the dead. And and surely these disciples are beginning to piece these things together and they're beginning to understand and they're making the case to Thomas. The conversations must have been lively. All these conversations, they occurred behind closed doors. Notice John again says that they were in a locked room just like they were before. Why? Because they're fearful. They're fearful of the Jewish authorities arresting them. Though they're behind closed doors, the Lord can't be kept out. He hears Thomas' words. He, he knew Thomas's heart. Just as he knows the hearts of all people. Just as he knows your heart in this room right now. Whether it's filled with faith or whether it's not. He knows. Jesus responds gently to Thomas's skepticism. Jesus appears in the room bodily, and it seems that Jesus appears in this room, this room just for Thomas's sake. That teaches us a lot about our Savior. He is the good, gentle shepherd who chases after the one wandering sheep. Leaves the 99. He is the one who searches for the lost coin and will turn the house upside down for that one lost coin. And so he comes into this room, apparently just for Thomas's sake. And he quotes Thomas's words. Jesus knows. The good, gentle shepherd knows Thomas and he knows what's in his heart. I know my own and my own know me, Jesus said. He knows you. He knows every single one of you. And he knows your heart. He knows what you're wrestling with. He knows whether your faith is solid or whether it's weak or whether it's non-existent. He knows his own. And Jesus, the ever faithful shepherd hears the cries of every single one of his sheep and he responds to the cry of Thomas here just to show us. We would expect that Jesus would respond strongly by rebuking Thomas. At least ridicule him, maybe even condemn him or forsake him, but but he doesn't. He doesn't crush Thomas with the knowledge that he has of him. Rather, he gently persuades him. He seeks to prop up his faith, to encourage it, to build it. And again, that tells us an awful lot about our Lord. It would have faulted Jesus for rebuking Thomas. Thomas, how dare you not believe? 
These disciples that you have known intimately for three years, that you've walked with and you've lived with and you've, you've, you've studied with, these have testified to you that I came back bodily. They saw me. And you didn't believe them. But even worse, you didn't believe me. I said that I would die and three days later be resurrected. And you didn't believe me. But he doesn't say anything like that. He gently persuades him. He props up the weak faith he has. Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. As Isaiah said about Jesus in that beautiful prophecy of Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He is the good, gentle shepherd with his people. I gravitate towards Thomas. Because I see much of myself in him, like many of you probably do. In those first three or four years of my Christian life, I was racked with doubt. I came to the Christian faith as a skeptic with all kinds of questions and said I wouldn't believe until everyone was answered. And then I became a Christian, and those first three or four years, I was racked with doubt. I was just afflicted with it. I used to tell people back then that if I thought long and hard enough about it, I could actually doubt whether I loved my own mom. I just thought hard enough about it. I remember wrestling. Do I actually believe this? For three or four years, do I actually believe this? I'm going back and forth. Faith was weak. But I had faith. All those years ago, I found myself reading Mark 9 one day, and there I found yet another man in Scripture that I gravitated towards. You may remember the story from the gospel. There is a man that has a son that is possessed by an unclean spirit, and that unclean spirit, a demon, is causing that boy to have seizures. And the seizures are horrific. They will throw him on the ground, and the boy will start foaming at the mouth, and he will become rigid. But the worst part of it is that the father says that the spirit would sometimes cast the boy into fire and cast him into water, hoping that he would die. And so this father, he is beside himself. He doesn't know what else to do. And so he comes running to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, please, Jesus, if you can, heal my son. He came to Jesus, but he has doubts. There's faith, but it's a wavering type. Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, but it's, it's mixed. It's mixed with some unbelief. It's not perfect. I believe, but it's wavering and it is weak. And the 
gentle, good shepherd doesn't respond by rebuking the man. He responds with mercy and kindness and grace, and he heals his son. He heals him. Prayer became one of the most dominant prayers of my life in those early years. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's a good prayer to pray. That's a good prayer for all of us to pray, no matter what state we're at in the Christian life. And in his kindness, as the years passed, he propped up my faith more and more. He gently persuaded me more and more by his grace, just as he does in gentleness and kindness with Thomas here. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Here, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side, oh, Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas, having given a faulty response to the resurrection, now gives a right response to the resurrection. He, he doesn't even need to touch the wounds of Christ. He's so overcome, so overcome, come by seeing this resurrected Lord and His grace and His kindness, that that desire is gone to touch His wounds. This man who eight days earlier had proclaimed he would never believe, never until he had thrust his hand into Jesus' side and touched the nail wounds in His hands, forsakes the opportunity. He's overwhelmed and pronounces the most bold of confessions. It reminds me of Job. Remember Job? He spoke of how he wanted answers from God. He demanded it. And then God finally appears and he displays before Job all that he is. And Job is stopped in his tracks. All this high talk of demanding from God, answers from God, it vanishes. He's confronted with the one true God, and the only right response is faith. And so it is with Thomas. I will only believe if I touch his scars. But when one is confronted with the living God, demand quickly flies out the door, and faith is the only right response. And he proclaims, My Lord. And my God, my Lord, my God, that is a right response to the resurrection. I want you to note two things about his right response. First, there's a reverence. Thomas rightly responds to Jesus as God. Upon seeing the resurrected Christ, the, the usual greeting of Lord was insufficient in Thomas's mind. 
He is moved spontaneously. He, he sees Jesus and there is only one explanation. There is only one right response because Thomas understands. He understands that the resurrection of Jesus is nothing less than the revelation of who Jesus is. That he's God of God. God of God. He's God in the flesh triumphant over the grave and triumphant over death and triumphant over sin and triumphant over Satan and triumphant over hell, triumphant over all the adversaries. God of God. So he erupts. My Lord and my God. He's victorious. As only God could be. The second thing you must equally see and of equal importance for you, for me. It's one thing to recognize that Jesus is God. It's quite another to do what Thomas does here and confess what Thomas does here. He makes a personal confession. He uses the pronoun twice. My Lord. My God. And there is all the difference in the world by adding that little pronoun in there. He's resurrected from the grave. He's God. But is He my God? My Lord? That makes all the difference. Thomas recognizes who Christ is. And he recognizes his need for him. And he yields himself to Christ. He submits himself to him in faith. And, and he worships him. He worships him. Declares that he belongs to him. That's now... How he sees himself. Christ as his Lord. Christ as his God. He belongs to him. And that is a right response to the resurrection. Jesus acknowledges that. He acknowledges that this is the right response. He asks a question and he gives a kind of beatitude after the question. Have you believed because you have seen me, he asked Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. He's not rebuking Thomas here. Some say that, and I think that is a gross mistake. Rather, in a very real way, Jesus is kind of looking over the head of Thomas, and he's looking at all of us. All of us that will come after those 40 days that he spent on earth in his resurrected, glorified body, all those that would come after that would have to receive the testimony of those that saw him during those 40 days. He's looking to us. You know, John, as he goes on here, will speak of this very thing in verses 30 and 31. He says this, he says, now 
Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, you have this testimony, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It's before you. You have the testimony, just as I do. So here's the question for you this morning. What is your response to the resurrection of Christ? You have to have a response. You do have a response. You've heard the testimony just like Thomas. You've even had the benefit of hearing Thomas's testimony. Maybe you're a skeptic like Thomas, and you think, well, Thomas just got carried away. He is like the Ewoks in Star Wars who just start worshiping CP3O because he looks different than everybody else is doing it. You know, it's interesting is even in movies like that, CP3O will try and stop the Ewoks from worshiping him because he knows he's not God. In the Bible, when this happens, when angels appear before men and men bow down before them and start worshiping them as God, the angels always stop them. Stop it. I'm not God. When Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra and they heal a person in Lystra and then the Greeks think, well, they are gods. This is Zeus and this is Hermes. And they begin to worship him. Paul immediately rebukes him and says, stop it. We're not gods. Jesus has no such response. And Thomas confesses, you are my Lord and my God. Jesus not only receives it, he blesses it. That's the right response. There's blessing in that response. Resurrection is the greatest proof of Christ's deity. Thomas understood that. And you and I have to reckon with it. Listen, Jesus prophesied that He would be raised from the grave three days after he died. He prophesied it over and over. Now, a man can prophesy that he's going to die and then orchestrate things to cause it to happen. That's not common, but you could do it. You could prophesy that you're going to, or fulfill a prophecy that you're going to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. You can arrange things. You can fulfill prophecies that you will go down to Egypt and come out of Egypt. You can orchestrate your own death. But no mere man can prophesy that he will rise from the grave three days later and then actually do it. That takes a God, man. God. What's your response? We all have to answer that. 
Jesus said to Thomas, he said, do not disbelieve, but believe. There are only two options here. There's no such thing as agnosticism. That doesn't exist. It's kind of belief that you can claim that you neither have faith nor disbelief in God. That's not an option. You either disbelieve, as Jesus said, or you believe. Those are the two options. Thomas had the right response. To the resurrection, this is the only right response. My Lord and my God. And as Jesus says, blessed are those who believe such. Oh, blessed. Blessings are beyond comparison. Beyond comparison. He who came into this world to die and to suffer for sinners, to be crucified at the hands of His very own creation, His creation, will He not give us all things He gives us blessing upon blessing as we come to Him. As John said there, by believing you have life in His name. Resurrection guarantees this. My friends, He is risen. He's risen indeed. We have to reckon with that. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do exalt you. Exalt you that you are a God of salvation, that triumphs over every adversary, even death itself. We give you glory and honor and praise that is due your name. Oh, how we would yield our lives more and more readily to you, our Lord and our God. Father, I do pray this morning for those, no doubt, in a room like this, there are dozens who do not know you as Lord and as their God. I pray that you would pour out your grace upon them. They might hear this testimony, that they might reckon with the resurrection and give the only right response. For those of us that are wavering in our faith, our faith is not to the degree that we desire. We pray that you would continue to prop it up, that you would continue to encourage it, and that you would keep us and sustain us until that day when our resurrected Lord returns upon the clouds with the angels and the archangels and ushers us into eternal life and all the blessings that glory has to offer. I give you praise, our Lord and our God. Amen.